my freshman year at Wake Forest University, I took essentially a, a great books class. It was called Politics and the Arts, but taught by the best professor I would say that I had that I had there, and uh, he would say that his, he was cloistered or sequestered away in, in an office at the top of uh, the lot, the Grand Wake Forest Library that had eight floors. He's on the eighth floor, back buried back in the dusty stacks opened up his door once and visited him in his office he had books everywhere and on his desk and on the floor and he would say i i i'm my off he had a bit of a lisp i would I'm, my office sits on i sit on top of all the books and he was just uh he led his class in a socratic method is always very small he was pretty underappreciated but he was he taught me how to learn he taught me how to think he taught me how to write he was a wonderful Jim, um, so one of the one of the great things about what a uni- university ought to be a real teacher. Anyway, so Bob Utley, he one of the things he taught us. He taught us in another class, Plato's Republic, and a few other books. And yeah, he taught us that in ancient books, position was also was was often, excuse me, extremely important. Uh, whereas today in the modern novel or just in books in particular, you've got a table of contents and the chapters march on. And sometimes they, they're linear. They move from chapter to chapter and ar- mount an argument sometimes not, but particularly, um, typically the, the chap, the position of the, in the book, it doesn't matter so much. I mean, you have a beginning and ending. Yes, of course. But he, he would also talk to us about the, in the ancient books, the middle, the beginning of course is important the ending, but also the middle of the book often. And that's certainly true in, um, well, in the books that, the ancient books that we read. And and it's certainly true in Revelation. And we are in chapter 12 today, and chapter 12 really is the center of of the book. Um, 22 chapters, chapter 12, but of course there weren't chapters in the original text. Those were placed in centuries later, and um, the book is divided into uh, seven sections. That's contested. I mean, everybody has a different view of Revelation, but uh, the book is is divided into seven sections, and within those seven sections, this is the fourth section. Uh, it's the beginning of the fourth section. So there are three before it, and there are three after it. It's right in the middle uh, of the seven sections and each of the seven sections by the way i've said this before i would contend based on my reading and also reading of commentaries that i that i appreciate that um each of each of the seven sections gives the same period of time the time between the two advents of christ his first coming revelation is concerned with the time uh that begins with the with the incarnation his first coming and then his return and it's the church age the the age of the spirit the age where Christ is reigning because of his victory. And so it repeats that time period seven times, each time essentially with increasing intensity. And it's not, it's not chronological. Um, another, another way that it's central in a, in a different way to divide the book is that most scholars agree that there are also within those seven sections, there are two sections. It's a, it's a bifold. The book is a bifold. There are two sections, Revelation 1 through 11, and then the second section is Revelation 12 through 22. And so it's also the beginning of the second section. So it's just a pivot. It's a hinge of the book. It's central to the book. Um, and it's totally concerned 
with the birth of the Christ child and how he devastates and destroys the works of the enemy and brings about the victory of the church and eventually a new creation. That's, that's what the chapter is about. Now, okay, look, one, it devastates, I've used that word twice now in this short lecture, it devastates, the, it really disturbs the argument that Revelation is chronological. How can it be chronological if John has already talked about many things that were happening in his lifetime and at the end of the first century, certainly after the, uh, the incarnation, the death, crucif- the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about a lot of, he's talked about a lot of things before this chapter in chapters one through 11 that are yet to happen, that happen throughout the church age and that, um, that are yet to happen. Uh, Christ, Christ's return, his glorification, um, the making of all things new. And, but then here he's talking about the, the first coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, very clearly, very clearly. Well, if it's chronological, that's a problem. It's not chronological. Okay, so that's just a side point. It's a reminder that this book is, and this is what this is a theological. It's recursive. It recurs. There, there's seven. There, there's a period, time period, between the two advents of Christ that recurs, or repeats, seven times. And, and so, this. The, my point is this: Chapter twelve is is the centerpiece of the book. It's like the bullseye on a target. If Revelation is a target, and Revelation is really, it, it, is, it is a telling of, of the, the, the period of history between the two advents of Christ, the church age, the age we're living in now. But it's also, in a sense, a history of, of everything, of the world, from God's perspective, what he's doing with the universe, and, and therefore what the meaning of history is. And right here in the center of it all, in the bullseye, is the birth of Jesus. So one of the theological things we can draw from that is that the birth of Jesus is central in history. It is the thing to which everything before it drives. The point of the cross on which Jesus, our Lord, hung was the center point of history. And it is the thing after which everything else flows. Everything else after Jesus' incarnation, the the incarnation of the Son of the living God and his cross pointedly and in particular and his resurrection, uh, everything, everything explodes out from that. Everything finds its meaning. Everything gathers into it and everything flows out from it. Everything finds its meaning. Uh, The whole, all of history, in other words, is written for Jesus. He said these sorts of things when he was here. Right, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The whole point of the Old Testament of God's history of everything up to Jesus, Jesus says, is me. I fill it up. I give it meaning. I'm the reason it was created. Not just the book, the history that it tells. Space and time exists for Jesus. So this is just one thing this position of this book tells us. And again, if we zoom out to the book of Revelation, well, how does it start? Let's keep on... the position of ancient books is important. How does Revelation start? Revelation 1 is all about the risen Christ giving John, I almost said Paul, giving John this message to proclaim. I'm going to pull back the curtain for you so that you can tell the church, here's what's really happening. Take heart. I'm reigning. I'm ruling. I have overcome. 
and in me you have overcome too. You are more than conquerors, even as you suffer. My kingdom is going forth. You're on the winning side. I am reigning, and I will return. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, written to the persecuted church. Take heart. That's the beginning. This is the middle, Revelation 12. And then what happens in the end? Of course, the victory of the Lamb as he comes to finally crush and defeat his enemies, all those who have not run to him for refuge. And he brings heaven down and reigns with us as our king and makes all things new and wipes the tears from our eyes. And he puts a tree in the middle of the city that he reigns from that's for the healing of the nations. How beautiful. Hopefully we'll get to that. My point is, you can see Jesus is prominent at the most prominent and pivotal places in the book, beginning, middle, end. So here we are in the middle, and I should, with no further ado, I should read the text and then just make a few brief points. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, she might devour it. He might devour it, excuse me. It's like that doesn't make sense. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, which is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, in times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. There are quite a few, as is so, the word common, as is so common with, as is standard with John, there are dualities, there are dual realities in, in this chapter certainly in, in Revelation. And, and here are a few of them. One, there's the dual reality of heaven and earth. What's happening in heaven affects what's happening on earth. Two, there's the dual reality of what this chapter is talking about is both the past and, can I say, the present, the time when both Jesus was born and did his work here on earth and defeated the work of Satan, 
in his dominion, and then also um, the, the church of Christ, his bride, his body that, that continues that continues the work of, of God on earth through uh, the work of Christ and, and, it, and continues the, to be the presence of God on earth and through, through, through which Christ continues his work of victory. So, so there's, there's the past and the present in that sense. And there is, there's certainly, um, there's certainly Christ and there's the church. There's certainly Christ in the church. Um, and, and the two are really compressed by John as, as he, again, is so often the case with John, um, in his book, which is one of the things that makes it confusing, but also rich. And so we see very clearly that this, this center of the book, John is talking about the birth of Jesus and his incarnation and his life and his defeat of, of the dragon. But it's also talking, it's meshing, compressing into that, the persecution of the church, just as Christ was persecuted in his life and certainly in his death. So the church is persecuted, but out of her persecution, she's victorious, uh, just like power comes out of her persecution and out of her being pressed, just as, as was with the case, as was the case with the cross. So there's this vital connection between Christ, the head and his body, the church. And just as, just as his greatest victory was at his greatest apparent defeat, the cross. So with the church and, um, Christ protects her, even though Satan pursues her and persecutes her and kills her. Um, there's a sense in which she cannot be harmed. And so we have these dualities and I guess the first one I want to talk about is the, I guess the first one I want to talk about is the duality of heaven and earth. And and what do I mean by that? Well, and that kind of takes us to past and present too, which is the second duality I mentioned. You know, there's a sense in which John is compressing, um, he's talking about the fall of Satan in this chapter. You know, Satan was defeated by God and by the archangel Michael and C.S. Lewis so helpfully points out in one of his writings that, you know, sometimes Christians can have a dualist kind of approach to their theology, but that's not Christian. That's not Judeo-Christian at all. There's, there's one absolute power in the universe in the biblical theology, in the, in the worldview of Jews and Christians, which, come, which comes from God's word, the scriptures, and that is God Almighty, the uncreated. Everything else is created. Everything else is his servant, even Satan. He didn't make Satan as such. He made Satan Lucifer, an angel of light. But, but Satan rebelled and tried to be God. And then he tempted man, because misery loves company, to try to be God. And man fell too. But Satan, uh, he's not God's equal, you know, but like opposite equal. Just as powerful as God, but evil. No, no, no. That's, that's dualism. He's, he's Michael, the archangel Michael's equal. He's, he's an angel. He's a fallen angel. In a sense, he's God's plaything. God has total control over Satan. Satan has to, God says to Satan, this far and no farther. You see that all throughout this book. You see it all throughout the scriptures. Uh, God is using Satan, allowing him a certain amount of rope, but no more. You can go, you can do this, but you can't do that. Satan has to ask for permission from God to do things. And eventually he knows that his time is short as we read in this chapter. And eventually his, the jig is going to be up for him. And the t- clock is already ticking in a major way, in a conclusive way because of the cross where Christ essentially crushed Satan's head. Now, that's where we're going to go right now. So what am I saying with this heaven and earth duality? What I'm saying is in this chapter in particular, you see, you see this in, in the Gospels too, somewhere Jesus mentions this very thing. Um, he is 
you see the fall of Satan from heaven, and Jesus stops at one point as it's when the when his disciples come back saying, "Look, you sent us out, and man, the demons are subject to us, and uh, the kingdom is going out, and people are being healed, and they are trusting, you know, they're believing in you as the Messiah." And he said, and Jesus stops and he says, "Behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." What is he talking about? Is he thinking back to? what he saw when he was in heaven, when Satan tried to oust him from his throne unsuccessfully, of course. And a third of the angels who sided with Lucifer were thrown down with him uh, and became demons. And of course, J.R. Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings pictures this with the orcs. The orcs are fallen elves, right? There's a line in the Lord of the Rings that says, um, what is it? I'm blanking all of a sudden. It's something like everything is good at first. Everything is good at the beginning, right? So, so evil is a corruption of the good. And, and so Jesus stops and he says this, is he think, is what's, what's happening here, Jesus? Well, yes, he may be thinking back to that original fall, but he's also talking about the present. He's bringing that forward to the present. If indeed he is going back in his mind, in his memory, to that primordial fall of, of Lucifer and his demons. And he's saying, look, there's a much, it's, it's relevant. It's relevant to the context at hand. He's watching Satan fall and his coming to the earth as born as one of us, born under the law in the fullness of time to set us free, to keep the law for us as Adam did not, to obey God from the heart and to die the death of a lawbreaker in our place and to defeat the power of sin and death and to rise again victorious three days from the grave, victorious to begin a new creation for a new humanity. When he did that, he defeated the, the, he defeated the stranglehold that Satan had over the human race. And he began the process of restoring a broken creation because of our rebellion. And that is a fall. What Jesus is saying is that is a fall because of his death, because of his life and his cross. Satan was thrown down in an even more powerful way in an even more conclusive way. Because when he was thrown down the first time, he just just did damage. He had power to deceive the nations. We'll get to that when we get to Revelation 20. He's the prince of the power of the air. The, The earth was his kingdom. Jesus came to reclaim that. Jesus came to to reclaim that and to give it back to God as father and to give it back to us as co-regents. We were given the earth. The earth is our territory. We lost it because of our disobedience. We forfeited it to Satan for a time. Jesus came to recapture it and he describes it in primordial terms. And he's saying, and that's what John's saying here, the, the incarnation of the son of God, it, it shows us that Satan is falling Satan fell because of the arrival of the Christ, of the Christ child who grew to be a man and who died on a cross for us. Satan fell in a way that was even more significant, but very much tied to um, the way that he fell with, with the first, a third of the first angels who became mm-hmm. demons. So significant. So, so, so John is really compressing the past and the present and heaven and earth. And, and to, you know, this is central in world history, this, this arrival of, of Christ and his life and death and resurrection. It's central. It's the hinge on which all of history swings and turns. But um, 
It's also at the beginning. It's, it's forecast. It's prophesied at the beginning of Scripture. In, uh, in this, this chapter, Revelation 12 really, takes, really flows out of that. It's, it's, it's a revelation of the packed contents of that first prophecy of Christ. And in that prophecy, it's in Genesis 3.15, uh, theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of, of the evangel, the gospel, the good news of how, 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 is God going to, how is God going to clean up the mess that man has made when man rebels against him in the garden? And all of creation that, at, that man has been, that man and women have been given dominion over, rule over, falls, cracks, is poisoned. Like like ink and water, right? All of it's colored because of our rebellion against God. Um, how is God? Is he gonna? Is he gonna destroy us and start over? Is he gonna give up on creation? No. He. What does he do? He says he comes to Adam and Eve. He. Like, this isn't the time to go over all this, but he comes to Adam and Eve and he asks questions. What what he's doing is he's inviting them back into relationship, but only insofar as they confess, here's what I've done. And into the middle of the, the really s- sad confession that's no confession at all by Adam and Eve because of their sin, because sin has crept in and they've begun to be, as Augustine says, incurvatus say, curved in on themselves, self-focused, self, they're defensive. Adam blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. God then comes in. He doesn't demand a perfect confession. He comes into the middle of that curse and in the middle of, and I, again, I don't have time, but it's the curse itself. The whole episode is like a, like a target to again, use that metaphor and right in the bullseye, right in the center of that sort of staircase ring structure, uh, passage right in the dead center, right in the white hot core of that curse where we've just freaking screwed up everything, all of God's perfect creation. He, he offers, he, he inserts this promise. And it's in Genesis 3.15. And he says, I will put enmity or hatred. And, and in the Hebrew, enmity or hatred. Enmity just means I will make enemies between the two parties, right? Uh, it's the first word in the Hebrew, which is an, it's emphatic. It's emphatic because usually the verb is the first in the Hebrew sentence. So when it's not that way, it's often emphatic. And it certainly is here. Hatred will I put, enmity will I put. So, but God's the one placing it. He's choreographing it. He steps into the middle of the curse and he says, I'm still in control. I'm going to put hatred between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. He's talking to Satan. Between you and the woman. There's going to be a hatred between Satan and between the woman in particular. And what? And he advances it. What's the next line? And between your offspring, okay, the, the Satan's offspring and her offspring. So in other words, there's going to be a line that comes from Satan, his children. And what does Jesus say to the religious leaders? Shockingly, he says, you are your father, the devil, right? What does John the Baptist say to them? He says, you brood of serpents. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, we are born opposed to God, enemies of God, in the thraldom of Satan, our father. But God will also preserve a line, the line of the woman, the seed of the woman for himself that he has chosen for himself that he will use to bring the Christ child through, born of a woman, born of Mary, to, to save us from our sins. And from that seed, from that child, many 
will become God's children as the gospel is proclaimed about what Jesus Christ has done. So I will surely multiply, excuse me, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. Okay, so there'll be a war between not only Satan and the woman, between Satan's offspring, his children, and the woman's children. And then finally, he shall bruise, that's Satan, your, excuse me, he, he is the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head or crush, the, the Hebrew can mean crush and you shall bruise or crush his heel. And that's a prophecy of, in particular, the cross. When Jesus comes, there's going to be an incident where, think about the snake, right? He's going to bruise or crush your head, and you are going to crush his heel. The, the serpent is going to strike the foot, the heel of this seed of the woman, this, this man. And he's going to injure him. Think about a snake biting your heel. It hurts. It can even kill you. But with that very heel, the very place where that man, that seed of the woman is struck, he is going to take it and he's going to step on the head of the serpent and crush the serpent's head and kill the serpent and render him. He's going to finish him. But here's the key. He's going to finish him. He's going to strike. He's going to drive the deadly blow with He's going to inflict the deadly blow with the very thing that he, in the very place that he's been struck by the serpent, the heel. Think about the cross. The cross is the very place where Satan, where Satan's Satan, where Satan strikes most fiercely is the cross. We killed through our malice and evil as children of the serpent. We killed the son of God, God's only son. We killed him. He allowed it. He became, he was representing us. He was paying for our sins. He was absorbing death and evil and malice and guilt and shame and all else besides that's not good. It's not of God. All, at that very place of seeming victory for the enemy, he struck out and struck the heel of the man, of Jesus, the son of man. In that very place, at, at, at the cross, the cross was what dealt the decisive blow to the enemy because it was there through death that Jesus defeated death by paying for sin, which is death's power. Sin is what produces death. Otherwise, we wouldn't die. He paid for sin and thereby rendered. He took the stinger out of death and passed through death into resurrection and life. And when we look to Jesus Christ and we look to him by faith, you died for me. You came for me. You're my Lord and Savior. What you took on that cross, I deserve. You took care of the sin problem. Thank you, Lord. When we do that, when we look to him and cast our eyes to him by faith, you, were, you became a curse for me so that I could be, so that I could receive your blessing and be brought into sonship with your father as you were cast out. When we look to him by faith, with eyes of faith like that, we... The power of sin in our lives is, is paid for and we are moved from death to life. And though our bodies die, if Christ doesn't return until before we die, we will go to be with him. Our souls will go to be with Jesus, not Satan. And we, when he returns, when Jesus returns the second time, when he comes back for good to stay and to rule on this earth and to bring heaven down, we will get new bodies, resurrection bodies that will be impervious to death, unable to sin. 
uh, and we will live in a new creation with our king forever, as it was intended to be the first time. That's all was achieved. It was all achieved at the cross, which is why (laughs) we'll never stop talking about the cross. That's why Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, still has the holes in his hands and in his in his wrists, in his in his ankles, in his side. We'll never ever forget. It'll be the center, literally at the center of the new creation forever. John compresses all this. So, okay, what am I trying to say here? That's the center of history, but it's also at the beginning. God knew from the start, this is what I'm going to do, even before he made all things. This is, he stepped in the center of the curse and provided an answer, a promise. And that promise was his own son, who would take the curse upon himself, the curse of Adam, as a second Adam, to set us free. And that, my point is this, that's not only the center of all things, it's also at the beginning of the scriptures, right after the fall, right in the middle of the fall, Genesis 3.15, and it shoots through all the scripture and it helps give sort of, sort of steel girders, eye beam, eye beam, uh, sort of rails that provides structure for all of history and all of, all of biblical history. And so we can see this war. What do I mean by that? I mean that we can see this war between Satan and the woman and between the two lines that come from them, his children, people who hate God and war against God and are trying to kill God's people and the children of God, Israel, believing Israel. And then all who come, and then the Christ child who comes, who is an Israelite and a Jew and remains so. And then, and then he opens up salvation to the nations through trust in him, Jew and Gentile alike. And anyone who trusts in Christ Jesus, the true Israel, becomes a child of God, becomes the Israel of God, God's children. So um, that you see how there's this war raging between the, this, the line of God and the line of Satan all throughout the Old Testament converging on Christ, and then it's still going on. It's still going on today. So in the biblical worldview, there are, there are really just two races, the seed of the serpent and the seed of, of the woman, the seed of uh, God's children, Satan's children, God's children. And we're all born opposed to God, hating God. But when we trust in Jesus Christ, God makes us his children through his son by faith. It's not through our birth. It's not through our efforts, not through our good deeds. It's through the life of of Jesus through his good deeds. It's through his work for us. It's through his death for us. It's through his resurrection for us. We are united to him by faith. And that's really what John is talking about uh, in Revelation 12. And, and then finally, he compresses, we see this duality of the Christ and the church. Um, just as Satan raged against Jesus, this child, and tried to destroy this child, but even when he thought he had at the cross, that was Christ's greatest victory, and he rose from the dead, impervious to death, unable to sin. And so just in that same way, because we are united to Christ vitally by faith, we who look to him, the church, the church is his body. He's reigning from heaven, and Satan hates the church just as much as he hates Jesus because we are his body. We're vitally united to him. How would he not hate us? But he knows that his time is short. He's, he's fighting a losing battle. Christ has already won. And that's the message to the church that John wrote in the first century. And that's the message that we continue to carry until he returns. We win. Even, even if we're persecuted, even if we die, we win. And we will be. And we will be hated by the world. 
the seed of the serpent, and we'll be hated. We're hated by Satan, and he's trying to kill us. But we, you know, we're taken out into the desert, as it were. John says in Revelation twelve, and you know, and we are uh, watched over by God. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer. It means that we're we're covered from His wrath, and we He's we are seated in the heavenlies with Him, and He uh, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and He's going to make all things new, and we're going to live in that new creation forever. Um. So even if the worst things happen to us, we have a great and an imperishable hope. So we are we see we see these dualities of of past and present, of of heaven and earth. Uh, what happened in the heavenlies? You know, the first primordial fall of Satan um, affects the earth and, and and is happening on earth. And what the the victory that Jesus achieved through his life and death and resurrection on this earth was playing out in the heavenlies. And then and then the duality of Christ and His church. Um, we're vitally united to him. And even our greatest defeats, oftentimes, just like the cross, are um, the times where the power of God is released and his kingdom goes forth in greatest measure. And so it's when, so the last thing I'll say, it's often, um, the ch- that's why the church is always thriving on the ragged edge. It's always thri- thriving on the periphery where the church is being persecuted, not accepted by the culture. Because that that's that's the economy of the cross. The greatest victory of God is through His greatest defeat at the cross, and so that's how His kingdom goes forward is through persecution. We saw it in the early church. We we've seen it throughout church history. We see it today still in the majority world where the church is persecuted, and we're going to see it more and more today in the West as we are increasingly persecuted. Um, so the more under the gun the church is, the more she's going to thrive. The more the kingdom of God is going to go forth. And uh, Satan's trembling. He knows his time is short. His head is crushed. What is, how does John, how does John, how does Paul finish the book of Romans, his magnum opus? In Romans 16, he says, you know, God will soon crush Satan, the head of Satan under your feet. We are vitally linked to the work and the person of Jesus Christ by faith. And so it's, it's, it's looking to that reality, to that spiritual reality, to that heavenly reality not to what we see here playing out on earth. Inflation, the church losing its its place in society, wars in Ukraine, the rise of China. It's not looking to that stuff. It's looking to this stuff that John is showing us. Remember, this book's called Revelation. It's a revealing of how things actually are, not how things seem so that we can understand what is going on and that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. So press on, um, to him who overcomes and to conquers, to him who conquers um, by laying his life down, by letting go of his rights, uh, that, um, that the kingdom of God goes forth. So God bless you all. Hope that encourages you.